Well, James is going to read to us from Psalm 119 as he comes up. If you would like to follow along in your blue Bibles on page 615 or follow along on the screen behind. So from Psalm 119, starting at verse 161. Rulers persecute me without cause, but my heart trembles at your word. I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great spoil. I hate and detest falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, Lord, and I follow your commands. I obey your statutes, for I love them greatly. I obey your precepts and your statutes, for all my ways are known to you. May my cry come before you, Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, Lord, and your law gives me delight. Let me live that I may praise you, and may your laws sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. Good morning, I'm Philip. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, I've been at uh, Colonel Light Gardens for a while. I'm the husband of Joanne, who's service leading, so this is basically a date for us. Um, We're going to talk about scripture. now, this morning, we're a church. I'm stating the obvious. Uh, most of us here are Christians. Uh, and so, obviously, the Bible is important to us. Uh, we're evangelicals as well. Uh, so, holding the Scripture as, as an authority is a central part of our tradition. And we're at a Trinity church. So, we have a reputation for placing a very high value on the reading and teaching of the Bible. So... I've got a question to ask you, for you to ask yourself, actually. Uh, It's a simple question, and it's going to be something of a guiding question for us this morning. Here it is. I want you to ask yourself, do I love God's Word? Do I love God's Word? Now, I don't mean just as a matter of principle, um, but I mean, do you love it the way this psalmist loves it? Uh, we, read a bit of, uh, we read a bit of Psalm 119 before. Look at it from verse 161. This is the sort of language he's using. My heart trembles at your word. I rejoice in your promise. I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. This psalmist loves God's word so much that he composed a 176-verse 22-stanza acrostic poem based on the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, declaring how much he loves God's Word. So when he says he loves it, I think we can believe him. He's, he's done the hard yards, yes, he clearly loves it. So with that in mind, let's ask ourselves again, how much do we love God's Word? Now, we don't really know anything about this psalmist. Uh, He's just the guy who wrote Psalm 119. But he's profoundly and passionately expressed his love for God's Word. Uh, 
We've only read two of the 22 stanzas uh, of this psalm today, but you get the picture. So if we hold the Bible in high esteem, we're looking at a pretty high bar for being able to say that we love God's Word the way this guy loves God's Word. But this psalm, it's not here to make us feel bad uh, or feel inadequate. It's here as a model for us. It's here for us to sing along with the psalmist to learn to love God's Word. So if we're going to not only hold up Scripture as, as an authority, uh, but to learn to sing along with the psalmist in our love for God's Word, we need to know what God's Word is. Uh, and that's where we're going to start today. Uh, we're going to spend some time thinking about what is God's Word. Uh, we'll spend some time thinking about what Scripture does. And then we're going to think about how can we learn to love God's Word like this psalmist. So let me pray, and then we'll begin. Father in heaven, thank you for your word to us. Today, help us to understand what your word is. Help us to learn to love it like this psalmist does. Have it shape us in every way. Father, give us insight into our own hearts, uh, and through your spirit, please change us to be like you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's begin. What is our doctrine of Scripture? Now, I'm, no doubt, when, you, when I say doctrine of Scripture, there's people that are afraid I'm going to start getting very technical. Um, that's really not what I want to do this morning. Doctrine, it just means teaching. Uh, so it's shorthand for what the Bible says, the whole Bible says about something. Um, and Scripture, well, it's, it's a term for the collection of documents that the church has always recognized as being God's revelation to humanity. So for our purposes then, uh, the terms Scripture and the Bible, they're largely interchangeable. So when we're talking about the doctrine of Scripture, all we're really talking about is what does the Bible say about itself? That's what we're going to look at. Uh, I'm going to make a disclaimer at this point as well. Um, there's many questions we could ask about the Bible. Uh, how was it collected? How was it decided what's in and what's out of the Bible? Um, how do we know it's genuine? Uh, are there any mistakes? Has it been distorted? Lots and lots of more questions as well. Um, they're all really good questions, and I'm not going to answer any of them. Um, they're not, not because they're bad questions, but because we need to focus on the very heart of what Scripture is this morning, because otherwise I wouldn't stick to my 27 minutes. Um, but if, these, if, they're, if they're questions for you, and if they, if, they, if they cause an issue for you, absolutely ask the questions. Come talk to myself afterwards or to one of the staff sometime, put it through the SMS questions. Uh, yeah, they're good questions. You, they should be asked, but I'm not going to address them right now. So, with that in mind, what is Scripture? How are we going to define it? Uh, it's not necessarily an easy task, because uh, there's a few different aspects to it. Now, we could take a, a purely descriptive route, um, and we could call it a collection of ancient documents that's been recognized by the church as the official and legitimate writings of the Christian faith. Now, that's absolutely true, but it's kind of limited, isn't it? Like, it doesn't even mention God or anything. Uh, so I think we can do a lot better. Uh, we could also call it a collection of timeless truths about God. Now, there's a, certainly an element of truth in that as well, but there's a couple of problems. If we think of it as timeless truths about God, what's making God the subject of Scripture 
but it's not really treating him as the author, is it? So we run into a problem there. But the other issue is we have to ask, is the Bible really timeless in the way we might be tempted to think of timeless? Uh, in reality, as we read the Bible, we realize that a lot of it is very time-full, to coin a term. Um, much of Scripture, it's about very specific events at specific times in particular places and circumstances. Uh, let's just have a quick look at the first few verses of Luke 3, just as an example. Uh, let's put it up on the screen. Luke is introducing the ministry of John the Baptist. He writes, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Luke is going to a lot of detail here to make sure that we know exactly when and where this is happening. It is based in time and history. So how should we think about Scripture then? What I'm going to use as our working definition for this morning's purposes is we're going to call it God's self-revelation in word and in deed. God reveals himself through it in word and deed. Let's break that down a little bit, and we'll work it out. First of all, God has revealed himself in history. Now, he could have revealed himself by giving us a collection of abstract facts about himself, a, a, just a, a list. These are the facts about me. Um, but instead of presenting himself like that in a, in a lecture of timeless truth, he's revealed himself on the stage of history, and in Scripture, what we see is him showing us who he is as much as he's telling us who he is. Um, from creation itself, God is involved. Through his promises to a, of a deliverer to Adam and Eve after a fall, his promises to Abraham, his delivery of uh, his chosen people Israel from slavery in Egypt, and so on and so on. In Scripture, we see God both showing us and telling us who he is. And think about the way, for example, that he speaks uh, to the people at, the, at Mount Sinai uh, when he's affirming the covenant for them in Exodus 20. Have a look at it on the screen. He says, I am the Lord your God, he's telling them who he is, who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. So he's showing them as well as telling them and we see the character of God on display throughout Scripture. His justice and His mercy and His, his wisdom, His grace, they're all on display throughout Scripture. God speaks and God acts, revealing Himself to the world and to His people and to us. And of course, the very center of God's self-revelation is Jesus. Uh, God Himself bodily enters into history revealing himself, his character, and his works. See the way that the writer of the Hebrews uh, puts it in chapter 1. Again, it's on your screen. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. 
The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is the exact representation of God, or as Paul puts it in Colossians 1, the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God's perfect self-revelation as creator, as redeemer, and as Lord. So God has uh, revealed himself on the stage of history in word and in deed, and scripture is a written record of that. But the record itself, it's also God's self-revelation. Now, we say that Scripture is inspired by God. Inspired can be a very misleading term. Um, We might be tempted to think of uh, writing something that's inspired, like an artist that sees a sunset and decides to compose a sonnet about it or something. Uh, It is not that kind of inspired that we're talking about. What we're talking about is... uh, the, uh, what the Bible refers to um, that shows that there are dual authors to Scripture. It is written by humans, but it's also written by God. Look, let's look at the way that the, uh, the Bible uh, phrases it. Uh, first of all, uh, let's look at uh, 2 Peter 1, uh, verse 21 on the screen. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Or as 2 Timothy 3.16 phrases it, all scripture is God-breathed. So the various books of the Bible, they're diverse in their their style and their genre and their circumstances because they're written by different people at different times and in different circumstances. But they are all breathed out by God. That's what we mean when we say scripture is inspired by God. Scripture is God's words written through human authors. Um, This accounts for the the document of the Bible that we have, but that's still not the end of the story of God's self-revelation. Because God uses Scripture to reveal himself to us personally, to individuals. The Holy Spirit works through Scripture to reveal himself to us, to teach and to remind people of the truth that is in Jesus Christ. See how Jesus uh, tells the disciples in John 14. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So this is God's self-revelation to us in history and in Scripture. God is central to the process at every single point, It's about God, it's by God, and it's through God that he reveals himself. Uh, To use a pithy definition from Peter Adam, uh, which I meant to put on the screen, but I haven't, so you have to listen carefully. Uh, We can define scripture as God's words written for his people by his spirit about his son. God's words written for his people by his spirit, for his son. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about scripture, and we could go on for hours. Um, But at the same time, we don't want to overcomplicate things and end up missing the forest for all the trees. 
we want to focus on the core of what Scripture is. Uh, and there's just a couple more details that we want to fill in our picture. Now, we've already uh, talked about what it means when we say Scripture is inspired, uh, but we should also be aware of what we mean when we call the Bible the authoritative Word of God. What does it mean for the Bible to be authoritative? Well, the idea of a document having authority um, is straightforward in some cases, uh, like a rule book, for example. Think of playing Monopoly, um, as inevitably happens when you play Monopoly, an argument breaks out about how you're meant to play. Uh, what's the authority you appeal to? It's the rule book. Although I think everyone plays by house rules anyway. But the authority of Monopoly is the rule book. In that sense, a document having authority is fairly straightforward. It's not that straightforward in the Bible, though, is it? Uh, it's not a list of rules. Um, it's not a, a list of abstract facts. Uh, it's diverse in, in the way that it communicates who God is. And so applying it in any given situation in a way that is authoritative is not necessarily straightforward. Now, we could say a lot about it, uh, but... I think the simplest approach is to remember what Scripture represents. It's God's self-revelation. And if it's God's self-revelation, we know that it is trustworthy and that it is true. So the authority of Scripture, it really is the authority of God speaking through Scripture. So it is trustworthy and it is true. Uh, the final element to put into our picture of Scripture this morning, uh, which we need to add into your handout, is that Scripture is active. And by that, I mean that it's actively used by God for His purposes. Look at these classic verses from Isaiah 55 on the screen. As the rain and the snow come down from the heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. We're going to come back to this idea of Scripture having purpose shortly, but the main point is that God reveals himself for a purpose. His word has purpose. That's a thumbnail sketch of Scripture. Uh, so we need to ask ourselves at this point, if we have a simple understanding of what Scripture is, what do we do with Scripture? What's it for? How do we use it? Uh, again, let's put a few uh, pieces together. First of all, the Bible requires understanding. Now, we've all heard the old idea of students sleeping with a book under their pillow the night before the exam, hoping that some knowledge will infuse into their brain by osmosis. That works about as well with a Bible as it does with a chemistry book. Uh, the ink on your Bible, it's not magical ink, it's not mystical in any way. Running your eyes across the words of Scripture alone, it's not going to give you any benefit, uh, spiritual or otherwise. God's Word requires understanding. And if we turn back to our psalmist friend in Psalm 119, we can see that he knew he needed understanding. And he frequently says so through the psalm. If you look at verse 169, uh, which was read earlier, we see him crying out to God for understanding of his word. 
he longs for understanding. Our heads and our minds, they're so important as Christians and as disciples of Christ, and they need to be shaped by God's word. And that's why Paul exhorts the church in Romans 12 to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Understanding who God is and what he has done, it shapes the way that we see the world and how we think about the world. Now, we've recently had a pretty good example of this here. Uh, We were, uh, a few weeks ago, we finished looking up at the first section of of the book of Revelation. It taught us to see and understand the world around us by helping us to understand the the greater spiritual reality that lies behind earthly events. We saw that for the people that it was first written to in the midst of suffering, they were shown that despite the difficulties they were up against, the true spiritual reality is that God is on his throne and the history past, present, and future of humanity is in his hands. As evangelicals, uh, as people that put a high value on Scripture, I think this is probably an area of strength for us overall. Um, We tend to work very hard to understand God's Word and to have it shape our understanding. But I think there's a danger in this as well. Um, A danger which I think it represents uh, something of a siren call to the evangelical church. Our temptation is to allow God's word to only affect our head and stop at the neck. Our desire shouldn't just be for knowledge. Um, We don't read scripture so we'll be good at Bible trivia quizzes. We read it for wisdom. That's why we want to understand it. The ability to see the world through God's eyes and make decisions according to his wisdom. If we look at Romans 12, 2 again, and we'll put it on screen this time, we'll see what it actually says. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our understanding must result in change in ourselves. If we're aiming to only intellectually understand, then we're treating ourselves as just walking brain boxes. Uh, that's not what a human is. There's more to us than that. God made us more to be more than just brains on legs. So if we're aiming if we're only aiming to gain understanding from Scripture, then we're treating the Bible like it's a lecture. Um, It's useful for gaining information and understanding, but that's about all. Uh, God has made us for more than understanding, and he's revealed himself to us as more than just a list of facts. Our psalmist knows this. However much he cries out for more understanding, though, there's clearly more going on for him. He doesn't come across as someone that's just walked out of a lecture. It doesn't take much reading of Psalm 119 to realize that God's word hasn't just shaped the psalmist's head, but it guides his heart. Uh, Throughout the psalm, he's effusive with his emotional response to God, and particularly to God's word. 
he really does love it. It's important to realize that our emotions are part of who we are. They're part of us. They're not an accident. They're not a flaw. They're not an unimportant detail. They're an integral part of what it means to be human. God created us as emotional creatures. He gave us emotions. He, does, he doesn't just want our minds transformed and renewed, but our hearts as well. He wants us to delight in him. So why does the psalmist delight in God's word? Because it's God's self-revelation to him. God reveals himself through his word, and the psalmist's heart has been transformed. He longs with all of his heart to know God more and to live according to his word. It's fundamental to who he has become, and his emotions show it. The shape of the Bible itself, uh, it shows us that in revealing himself to us, he wants our emotions to be involved. Look at the Psalms, for example. They're not a list of theological facts. Now, they are highly theological, but they're not a list of facts. Their songs and their prayers, they express and they help us to express emotion. The great reformer John Calvin, he referred to the Psalms as the anatomy of all parts of the soul because they, they reflect such a full range of human emotion, from anger and despair through to joyful delight and exuberant praise. So when we read the Psalms, we don't just tease them apart to find theological nuggets of truth in there. We need to understand them absolutely but we also need to feel them. So our hearts should be shaped by God's words just as much as our minds. But once again, there's a danger here. If having Scripture shape only our minds was treating it like a lecture, then having it stop at our emotions is like treating it as a movie. Think of a movie that you've watched that's given you a strong emotional response. So, for example, going back a few years, you might have seen the movie Castaway. It's a Tom Hanks movie. He's a postal service guy. He's on a plane. Something goes wrong. He crash lands. And he is stranded on a small island in the ocean by himself. Now, it's, it's masterfully written. It's well acted and scripted. And the makers of the movie expertly take you through his emotional responses, feeling those things with him. First, the despair and the despondency and realizing that he's stuck alone with no way to escape, but then through to his hope and his excitement of realizing how he can get out of that situation. The end. Then the movie finishes. Now, I have a memory of the movie, uh, and apart from perhaps not seeing volleyballs in the same way again, it has no lasting effect on me. In the movie, Tom Hanks has a volleyball which he makes in his with best friends and then the end it floats away into the ocean and he's very sad and it's, you know, emotional. Apart from that memory, there's no lasting effect of that movie, however much it made us feel with Tom Hanks' character. So it is with God's word. 
If we feel the emotion of it, but that's all, we're missing the point. Even if we understand it as well as feeling the the emotion of it, and that's all, we're still not all the way there. God's Word isn't a lecture, but neither is it a movie. Scripture shapes our hearts and our minds, but it must also affect our will. God's Word must change what we do and how we live. I don't think it's possible to put it more directly than James has in James 1. Let's look at verses 22 to 24 on the screen. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So, to paraphrase an already rather blunt statement, if I read God's Word and don't do what it says, I am a complete moron, an an imbecile. It's like looking in a mirror, turning around and saying, what do I look like again? Is just dumb and is completely missing the point. So James is being blunt and he's being clear. God has revealed himself through Jesus and through his word for a reason to bring us into relationship with him and to make us like Christ. So hearing it but not changing what we do is completely missing the point. Our psalmist friend, he gets it. He makes it clear that his delight in God's Word, it leads him to follow God's commands, to obey his statutes and precepts, and to live his life in active praise of God. It has shaped his mind and his heart and his will. So what metaphor can we use for this? Scripture shapes our minds and our understanding, but it's not a lecture because it does more than that. It captures and shapes our emotions. But it's not a movie, because there's more to us than that. God has revealed himself to us on the stage of history, with his words and in his actions, and most completely in Jesus Christ. Through his word, he informs us and teaches us. He captures our hearts but he also demands a response. So we can think of God's Word like interactive theatre, because we find ourselves in the middle of the action. We're being called to take part in God's great drama being played out on the stage of history. His self-revelation, it demands a response, and the only appropriate response is to fall down and worship with every part of our being, our hearts and our minds and our wills. To quote our psalmist's plea to God in the second last verse of the psalm, let me live that I might praise you and may your laws sustain me. So let's go back to our first question. How much do you love God's word? Do 
Do you love not just understanding it or the emotion of it, but responding to it? Here's a few questions that might help us as, not as a way to feel guilty, but as a, as a diagnostic tool to help us understand our own hearts and the way that we treat Scripture. After hearing a sermon or being in a Bible study or doing your own reading, how much do you think and pray about that Scripture over the following week or even the next day? How much does it shape your prayer even that same night straight after the Bible study? Do you feel like you don't get as much as you should out of reading or hearing God's Word? Some people uh, love engaging with theological blogs and books and podcasts and, uh, and articles. If that's you, can you say that there's a noticeable change in your life because of them? Or perhaps you're in a category of feeling like you'd prefer not to have to think too deeply about God's Word. You want something easy to digest, something that makes you feel good. Is that loving God's Word? Or maybe you just wish that you loved God's Word as much as this psalmist does. I'll be the first one to put up my hand and say, I'm guilty of not letting God work in me past my head. Uh, partly because I'm involved in academic theology, partly because it's just naturally the way that I'm wired, but this is always going to be a real risk for me. Uh, and I've been deeply challenged by this uh, in, in preparing this sermon and thinking it through. So the question is, for me and for all of us, how are we going to change the way that we read Scripture? I'm going to finish with just a few ideas. First of all, we need to consider the depth with which we're engaging with the Bible. Uh, if you're like me, it can be all too easy to just not think about a sermon or a Bible study or a passage or my own reading after it's complete. Uh, that makes me a candidate for James's complete moron label, if I'm reading it and forgetting what it says. Deep engagement with Scripture, it means deliberate reflection on what we've been reading and hearing and how it should affect our lives and what it says about God. Uh, meditating on Scripture is something that we should be embracing. Uh, scripture is rife with mentions of uh, God's people, holy people of God, meditating on God's Word. Now, for us, as conservative Western evangelicals, sometimes the idea of meditation can make us feel a bit nervous. It sounds like there's going to be incense involved and chanting the holy syllable Om. Um, that's not what the sort of meditation I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a deep and dedicated concentration on Scripture. Not just reading it, giving it a cursory uh, understanding and moving on, but sitting with it, mulling on it, letting it turn over in your mind, asking yourself, how should this be affecting my life? What does it say about God? What can I change so that I better reflect God's Son? 
no instance necessary. Second, and this is related to the first, we need to engage with Scripture with time. Uh, I don't think deep engagement with Scripture can be done quickly. We need to dedicate time to it. Now, for a lot of us, I think that means uh, finding proper, distraction-free, screen-free, notification-on-your-phone-free time to think and read and pray on Scripture. Uh, Now, in different stages of life, that sort of time, it might be what you dream of. Uh, But there's the other aspect of that, is studying Scripture over time, coming back to it day after day, mulling over it, keeping it in your mind, keeping it turning over. We need to keep coming back to it again and again to absorb it and digest it and make it part of who we are. Third, we need to engage with Scripture prayerfully. Uh, Scripture should always shape our prayers because an appropriate response to God's Word is always going to need God's help. Uh, It's the Holy Spirit who speaks to us through Scripture, but it's also the Holy Spirit who will enable us to respond. Try making a point of always praying something from what you've been reading or hearing or studying. Let Scripture always shape your prayers. Trinity Churches, we have a reputation uh, for loving to study and to understand God's Word. My prayer is that we become a church that loves to be shaped by, in every way by God's Word so that our hearts and our minds and our whole lives reflect God's goodness and grace. I pray for us that we learn to love God's Word like that psalmist loves God's Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for, your, thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you for your spirit who speaks to us through your word and shapes us according to it. Father, make us a people that longs to be shaped by your word. Help us to engage our minds and our hearts and our wills to praise you for your word, to shape our lives according to your word, and to reflect your goodness to all those around us. Father, make us a church that loves you and loves your word. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.